Well, what a beautiful gospel reading. There's so much in there we could focus on. So many things, unfortunately, today we will have to leave for another day. I'd love to preach a whole nother sermon on the sword that pierces Mary's heart and uh, just imagining what that moment must have been like for her. But uh, today I want us to focus on uh, the reign of Jesus, the fact that Jesus is king, and to do so through this gospel reading, the presentation of Jesus in the temple. It's a very well-known reading, very... uh, common to be read this time of year. It also comes up in just a few weeks' time. This event in the life of Jesus, in the life of the church, has its own feast day called Candlemas. Uh, you may have heard that from some you know, distant poem or story from a lifetime ago. It may ring a bell. Candlemas is a day on February 2nd where the church remembers this story, the presentation of Jesus in the temple, remembering the fact that Jesus is the light of the world. And so often, as the name implies, people would bring their candles to that service, uh, candles that they would light in their homes to pray with throughout the year, and they would be blessed in that service. And so uh, that's in just a few weeks' time, and yet we read it today here as well. And yet one of the things I love is the way that those kind of tie this moment and February 2nd together, because there's a counterintuitive reality at play in this very moment, because for most of us, Christmas is over. Culturally, we've spent the last month singing Christmas carols. We've had presents. We've done the meals. It's over. You know, everything's on sale if you go to Target this afternoon. Everything's on clearance. And yet, the church, traditionally, it's been the opposite. It's always preparation up until Christmas Day, and then the feasting begins. And so we live with this tension this time of year. Yesterday, my family wanted to put on Christmas carols in the car, and I just couldn't do it. I I couldn't hear another Christmas song because we've heard them for a month straight and yet that's when we're supposed to put them on. And so we live with this interesting tension and yet Candlemas reminds us that Christians, our ancestors in the faith, knew how to live into this season, not just a 12-day season as the song reminds us, the 12 days of Christmas, but in many cultures in years gone by, they would leave the Christmas decorations up all the way until Candlemas on February 2nd. They would see it as this long extended time of celebrating, remembering the light that comes in the darkness, especially in the darkness of, say, a European winter. And so uh, there's something for us to sit with there. I think we, uh, we've forgotten that. Maybe we could blame it on our Puritan ancestors. Uh, I read a Puritan poem this week. Um, there's some things the Puritans did that were just fine, but they weren't into feasting. <laughs> they weren't big on the whole festive uh, thing. <laughs> and so I read this poem about Candlemas. In the 17th century, there was this poet called Robert Herrick, and this was his take on Candlemas. He said, end now the white loaf and the pie, and let all sports with Christmas die. (laughs) That was his take on the Christmas season. All sports and just Christmas as well. Let it all die. Um, Neil, maybe that's a good poem for you. This morning, Neil and I were joking about how he hates all sports, or in times past at least, struggled uh, to find a sport that moved his heart. So, Neil, maybe this is a poem uh, for you. You know, just let all sports die. (laughs) Um, So, we're not going to do that. We're not going to live into that. Because um, I think there's something here. There's something to remember with Candlemas, with it being remembered here again in the middle of Christmas, the Christmas season. Um, why, why February 2nd, by the way? Just as an aside, if you want to mark your calendar, when that day comes around, why would the church remember this story yet again? Well, in Jewish culture, it was customary 33 days after a male child was circumcised 
to take them to the temple to be presented, uh, to be presented to the priest. And so that's roughly um, where February 2nd comes from, if you count it from Christmas Day. Um, But why would they do this? The reason that that was done, that this was a normal thing that we read about, this wasn't some unique thing Mary and Joseph were doing with Jesus because he was Jesus. No, they were just being good Jews, doing what every Jewish family would have done, which is around 33 days after he was circumcised, they're going to the temple. Two reasons this was done. One was to restore a mother to ritual purity. So in that day, especially giving birth, uh, it was seen as an impure thing, ritually uh, impure. And so the, the woman had to be restored to the community, to be restored in right standing ritually with the Jewish community. And so they would come and bring an offering. This was a poor family, remember? Uh, and so instead of the customary lamb, as we read today, they were allowed to bring doves as a cheap alternative, kind of an affordable substitute. Uh, You see a carryover of this custom even into the Christian faith, all the way up until the early 20th century. Even in the Anglican prayer book, you find this service called the Churching of Women. You could open a prayer book, and and I always kind of scratched my head at that. It said the Churching of Women, which clearly is a phrase from a a bygone era. And yet, it's kind of that same idea, a way of... um, acknowledging the significance of giving birth to a child and to dignify a mother in that process. The other reason, though, and this is where I want us to focus, the other reason this was done was to take a child to the temple to ask God's blessing on this new child, in a sense to ask the community to speak blessing and favor over this child that was born. And yet what we see, the whole point, the whole thrust of this story is that that movement gets inverted because Simeon doesn't welcome a child to be blessed. When Simeon sees Jesus, he does what all of us must do. And he says, no, it's that child to whom I need to go seek blessing. I need to ask their blessing over me. And so even Jesus, as this helpless babe, as he approaches the temple, everything gets turned on its head, which is what the gospel does. It turns things on its head. And so Simeon helps us see Jesus clearly. And he says, we're the ones who need to present ourselves. That's the irony of calling this the presentation of Jesus at the temple. It's really us realizing we're the ones who need to present ourselves to the babe. What Simeon and Anna both do is they help us see how we present ourselves. As we sang just a minute ago, oh, come let us adore him. Simeon especially, in his words to Jesus, shows us that we need to approach him as a king, that there's a sense of honor and reverence due to Jesus. Even this helpless babe, we approach him as royalty. And and it's a challenge for us in that. Most of us are Americans, at least we live in America. Uh, It's a a challenge living in a democratic republic to know how to think of approaching royalty. Our ancestors made sure of that, actually. (laughs) They ensured we would not have to know what it's like to live under a monarch. We can binge watch the crown. We kind of have this, there's something in our history. There's like a complicated, um, like parent issues going on with (laughs) with us as Americans. We love watching the crown, and yet we don't want to live under under royalty. We kind of are are keeping it at arm's length. And we went to war over this, after all. Um, But here's what that's done to us in our collective psyche. Leaders have to earn the right to be heard. That's the world in which we live. And so 2020 has been a political year, to say the least. And so we look at politicians and see them um, have to earn their platform. And so they do so based off of 
their experience, their education, maybe an outside endorsement. They build a case for why they are the one whose vision can succeed where others will fail. And then we all kind of give this collective assent uh, to their right to be heard, to their leadership. The, that is not how royalty works, as you all know. That is not what it means to be royalty. When William and Kate had George, no one is saying, I don't know about that one. <laughs> uh, I'm not sure he's going to cut it. I'm not sure that's king material. No, he's just a little baby. But instantly, there's this veneration that is given to him. There's this honor that's given simply because he's royalty. If you're English, George has this unrivaled significance, and he doesn't have to prove the case. It's just there. It just is. And I think that's something that Simeon wants us to see. And I acknowledge it's probably theologically ill-advised to compare our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ to politicians (laughs) or even to kings of this earth. And yet, I hope at some basic flawed level, you can see what I'm getting at. When they see Jesus, he's not someone who has to earn his platform. He's not a politician. Uh, He's not a ruler of this world. He's the uncreated king in the truest and most profound sense. And Simeon sees that. Simeon sees it beautifully and clearly. Jesus is not a self-made man, but he's Lord. He's king. We talked about hymns, Christmas carols last week. And just to add another one, just a few days ago, At Lessons and Carols, we all sang Silent Night, and that song gets something beautifully right because they say, Jesus, Lord at thy birth. That's kind of a one-line summary of what we see today in our reading. Jesus, Lord at thy birth, is the true identity of Jesus. And though countless people in history have missed it and have said he's anything but, or he's this, or he's that, we have two people today that get it so beautifully right. Simeon and Anna say, Jesus is Lord at thy birth. When, when Simeon especially sees this, one of the things that this story in Luke's gospel points out is the way that he changes his posture. He, once he sees Jesus as king, immediately becomes a servant. He greets him, quite literally, the language is slave. He says, you are my master and Lord and I am your servant. I'm a slave completely under your leadership. Wherever you go, I will go. And that's what we learn from Simeon and we have to do the same, to see Jesus and approach him with this humility where we seek nothing but faithfulness to our master. That's all we are asked to do. And so, as we wrap up, one other thing I think we learn from Simeon and especially from Anna as well is both of them are given to us as a model of trust. You see them learning what it is like to trust the promises of God, even in the face of overwhelming difficulty, overwhelming challenge and uncertainty. And in some ways, surely that is a message we need to hear. As 2020 wraps up, as 2021 approaches, what does it look like for us to be people of trust, to cling to trust even in incredibly uncertain times? because we do still live in uncertain times. We, I think, want to forget that. We want to will ourselves into this next chapter. You read the news that you know, hope is on the way. You, just, you can see it on the horizon. And yet we're not there yet. We are not there yet. You read the news and two to 3,000 people are dying every single day. We are not out of the woods. There is a dark season ahead of us as a society that leaves us all struggling to say, how do we cling to hope? How do we trust in the promises of God. And I think 
you see this hope in times of disorientation with both Simeon and Anna because they have been told, Simeon's literally been told by the Holy Spirit, you will not die until you see the fulfillment of God's promises. And yet he lives under oppression from Rome. He lives wondering how in the world that actually could be true. And yet for us as Christians, there is a lesson to be learned there. We believe and we say and we sing and we profess in the creed that the end of the story is certain that the end of the story is secure, that Christ has won through his birth, his death, his resurrection, and yet we live where we, like Simeon and Anna, long for the consolation of Israel. We look for the redemption of Jerusalem. And so as we wrap up, maybe just a word around that as well. There's something where we have to say we, we're not out of the woods yet. And then actually, it's not just the pandemic. It's the whole of our lives. Until our dying breath, we will, so to speak, not be out of the woods. We will have to learn what it means to cling to hope, to be people who trust that God keeps his promises while still struggling in the brokenness and the struggles and the, the, the brokenness, the evil that still is in our world and in our hearts. And so, as we wrap up, let's look at Anna for just a minute. If you look at verse 37, uh, we see this really remarkable woman that closes our story out, but who presumably was married at a young age, lived for seven years as a married woman, and then her husband dies, and then lives the rest of her adult life as a widow until she's the age of 84 when we meet her. And we're told that this elderly widow never left the temple, but worshiped there with fasting and prayer day and night. And there's something so beautiful about Anna's witness because uh, you see on the one hand this contemplative life with God. She never left the temple. She knew what it was like to pray and to fast. And yet it also says that she would speak about the child to all who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. And so it's kind of this contemplative and active life. She had this life of prayer and worship and yet also would boldly go out of her way to tell others the good news of the hope we have in Christ. And I just wonder, how can we do the same? As we head into 2021, what does it look like for us to, in a sense, never leave the temple? It's hard to take that one literally. On the north side, we rent a co-working space for a couple hours a Sunday. If you were to never leave here, it would be awkward. Rome would want you to join and get a membership, and uh, you, you should probably leave. But uh, don't miss the point. There's something to this. How, how do we, um, in our own life, never leave the temple? Um, chew on that this week. What would it look like um, in your own rhythms of life, in a sense, to never leave the temple? Um, just because we don't take that literally and, and struggle to take it literally doesn't mean there's not something there for us to sit with. What does it mean for us to uh, have a rhythm like Anna of prayer and of fasting? Um, because in many ways, I imagine if we have a life of prayer and fasting, it's probably hanging on by a thread. Um, 2020 has, if it was there before, um, has tested it. If it was an aspirational thing, it's probably put that way on the back burner. And so there is a challenge to us in this. Um, the New Year's always when we make New Year's resolutions. Um, don't just go out and buy a Peloton. <laughs> Consider what does it look like to never leave the temple and to resolve to live this way of life. And the church has often called this a rule of life, a rhythm of life that we live by. And I think Anna is an example of someone who lived a rule of life, someone who had an intentional, predictable, sustainable life with God. And I, I use those words 
uh, carefully. Um, your life with God needs to be intentional. You don't just stumble into it. Uh, it needs to be predictable. Predictability in your faith is not a bad thing. It is a good thing. It builds deep habits that are, are repeated and predictable in ways that will sustain you across a whole range of emotional responses. And so intentional, predictable, and sustainable. Um, and you need to actually be able to do it. It needs to be a rhythm of life that you can actually sustain. Um, you will not succeed by convincing yourself that you're gonna leave here today and become a monk <laughs> and that you're just gonna live some monastic life of pure devotion to God. You will, you will crash and burn. It's just too much. And so find a way in the actual rhythms of life that you live to have a rhythm like Anna of worship and of prayer and of life with others. I think that's the three things we learned from Anna today. She lived a life of worship in the temple. She lived a life of fasting, and she lived it with others. She wasn't in isolation. And so if you want help or wanna talk about how to carve out that rhythm of life, shoot me an email, um, talk to me after the service if you're here in the room. Um, I'd love to help you with that if that seems daunting or disorienting. But that's the invitation before us today from Simeon and from Anna, to see Jesus as king and then to live differently as a result, to live as servants, servants who actually then give devotion, give veneration and honor to the king as it's due. So uh, may God give us the strength to do so as we head into the new year. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. Amen. As you're able, would you stand as we now affirm our faith in the words of the Nicene Creed.